You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. The 2021 Forum on Workplace Inclusion Call for Proposals is now open. The Call for Proposals, or CFP for short, is the process we use to collect presentations to be considered for our program year, including our annual conference. This year's conference is called Workplace Revolution, from talk to collective action. The deadline to submit a proposal is July 27, 2020. For more information, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash CFP. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast, The Ubiquity of Masculine Leadership Traits, with Trina Olson and Alfonso Wanker of Team Dynamics. In their forthcoming book, Hiring Revolution, Team Dynamics co-founders Trina Olson and Alfonso Wanker explore how U.S.-based workplaces reinforce preferences for whiteness and masculinity in talent recruitment, hiring, and promotion. In this conversation, we'll explore the ways masculine and feminine leadership qualities get praised or punished in the workplace and discuss the connection to recruitment and hiring. In this podcast, you'll learn how preferences for masculinity are present in leadership and likability, suggestions for disrupting your own biased behaviors related to gender expression, and how gender, sexuality, and race are inexplicably linked and connected to leadership preferences in the American workplace. Trina Olson is a two-time executive director with a track record of building and retaining teams across race, gender, and sexual orientation to achieve shared goals. Trina has built an impressive portfolio of national and regional policy and advocacy experience, centering a multitude of progressive issues, including healthcare, hunger, living wage, immigration reform, transgender-inclusive non-discrimination, and more. Trina is an, ex- is an expert adult educator who has supported teams around the country to both improve their workplace culture and performance. Trina is the author of Fairness and Philanthropy, L- Leveling the Playing Field for LGBTQ Neighbors, as well as Seeking Safe Haven, LGBTQ People and the American Immigration Experience. Together, Trina and Alfonso have co-written a soon-to-be-released book entitled Hiring Revolution, a step-by-step guide to disrupt racism and sexism in the workplace. Alfonso Wanker is a seasoned executive leader and facilitator of transformational organizational culture and strategy campaigns, serving in a major leadership role within the field of philanthropy. Alfonso has been responsible for driving sector and systems-wide change to diversify both perspective and personnel in order to better steward resources responsible for underwriting major movements. Prior to co-founding Team Dynamics, Alfonso served as the Vice President for the Minnesota Council on Foundations, which collectively supported member organizations overseeing more than $20 billion in resources. Alfonso's leadership has been recognized as a 40 Under 40 awardee, 2017 Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal, facing Race Anti-Racism Award, 2016 the St. Paul Foundation, Catholic Leader Award, uh, Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, and he recently completed his tenure as board president for Pollen Midwest. Trina and Alfonso, thank you both so much for being here. We are so excited to get to be together on this podcast today. I'm so grateful to be invited and included in this really important community of people who we know are super invested in how to make sure we are living our inclusive values in the work that we do. And so for folks for whom um, my voice might be new to you, I'm Trina Olson. I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Team Dynamics. 
I'll just echo the thanks that Trina was sharing. Um, if my voice is new to you, my name is Alfonso Winker. I'm president and co-founder of Team Dynamics along with Trina. So today we're gonna get to talk about an aspect of the work that we do, which is really this intersection of race and gender in the workplace. And um, we actually have a upcoming book that we are in the middle of finishing touches right now that's called Hiring Revolution. It's entirely about how we are gonna deal with racism and misogyny in a hiring, onboarding, and retention practice. Because a whole lot of people, right, are thinking about their mix in the workplace. And one of the things we've gotten clear about is that people are not always noticing or naming the connective tissue between what those of us who live and work in America have been talking about as leadership qualities or leadership energy or leadership presence as actually really directly tied to performance of masculinity. And so it's one of the things that, that we wanna just dig in on today for everybody who's thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-sexism, um, pay equity, performance equity. It's all sort of wrapped into one. And because this is an audio medium, a couple of things that I'll share just as folks are listening because I think it's really relevant to how I come to this conversation. I am a white, queer woman um, who this year turns 40. And so I think of myself as about, God willing, 20 years in, about 20 years left to go in what I think will be my full-time sort of working career. So this idea that I'm really kind of mid-career right now and have had um, the embodied experience of being a white woman in the U.S. trying to go to work, trying to get hired, trying to get paid well, trying to not get sexually harassed, trying to be taken seriously. Um, and my whiteness is absolutely part of how I experience being a cisgendered female-bodied person. So that's just a couple hats or pieces of my lived experience and perspective that are going to drive kind of how we have this conversation today. And for me, because like Trina said, we're meeting some of you on this podcast platform, a few things you should know about me. Um, the first is that I'm third generation Mexican American. I identify as a person of color. I am a cisgender man and I'm also queer and when I think about a conversation about hiring, about pay, about promotion, really about all things talent development, I know that I have learned management and leadership from men. From a data perspective, I have had more women as supervisors and mentors, but I absolutely have early impressions in my career and early examples that have really stuck with me about what management and talent recruitment should be through the lens of being a man. And that's something that I have worked to undo and move away from. Not to say that all masculine traits are bad, but part of what we talk about in our book, Hiring Revolution, is the idea that talent development and recruitment overemphasize and then our workplaces reinforce a preference for masculinity and masculine behaviors. So not just a preference for men, but also the performance of masculine behaviors as performed by women, non-binary people, and transgender people. Um, so one of the things that we want to say at the top of the conversation is we are LGBTQ leaders, and we have both spent decades digging into the nuance of gender identity and expression and how really our gender expressions get policed. And we really recognize that there is a beautiful variety and range of how we do gender performance and that some behaviors have been coded as a gender norm. And in the US, meanings associated with masculinity have just been coded as more valuable. And so we are talking about today a spectrum of femininity and masculinity. So when we say femininity and masculinity, we are not talking about them as either or, but rather a spectrum of how individuals and groups of people perform gender. And part of why we think this is a really relevant conversation in a world in which COVID-19 as a global pandemic is happening to all of us 
in which the murder of George Floyd and subsequent uprisings and big conversations about race and racism, part of why we think this is relevant right now is if our cultural patterns and practices and what we're naming and noticing is all up for grabs anyway, meaning a whole lot of us have been forced out of our physical office spaces because it's just unsafe to be there, right? We have to work differently no matter what. In this conversation about race, racism, health, well-being, policing, violence against certain kind of bodies, it has also reignited this relevance of how we traverse the planet in our bodies and how our bodies are perceived by other people has a profound impact on what it is like to attempt to get a job, keep a job, do meaningful work for which we are paid well, right? And so this idea that we recognize a whole lot is up in the air right this minute. And part of what we know to be true that's hard to reckon with um, or reconcile with a lot of our values is, you know, we, um, Alfonso, myself, everybody at Team Dynamics, we know we do this work after decades and centuries of ancestors and organizers who worked hard. I was just in a conversation yesterday about Title IX and the impact in the 70s on women and how just across my mother's generation and my generation, we have had a profoundly different experience in school, in higher ed, and in workplaces. So we recognize that um, this has been a conversation happening for a long time. But the thing that the data bears out that Alfonso and I are often talking to folks about, the gender pay gap is not getting smaller. <laughs> and when we add race plus gender, women of color or people who are perceived to be women are, of color are bearing the brunt of the inequities. And so thinking about the fact that for some folks, this might feel like, well, wasn't this a conversation about the ERA or a conversation about, you know, the Lily Ledbetter Act or how we dealt with Anita Hill and non-discrimination and harassment? Like, yeah, this has been a decades-long conversation. And the thing we're clear about is that we're not getting close enough to wins yet, meaning boardrooms, C-suites are still full of mostly men. And given that the planet is havesies, havesies, that's wild. And one of the things that we want to zoom in on is there have been these incredible policy wins, both at a governmental and company-wide level. We know that you likely have some policies in place that forbid gender discrimination or claim expansive inclusiveness across a, a number of different gender identities and expressions. What we're most interested in is not so much the words that are on paper. We feel like that's, that's the net so that the bottom doesn't fall out. We're more interested in what are our day-to-day -day behaviors and what are the results that those behaviors have in who succeeds, who gets promoted, who gets hired, and who gets paid more. So there are absolutely praise and punishment for how we demonstrate our leadership and primarily masculine traits or masculine behaviors get rewarded. And we think workplaces could be more effective if all of us were allowed to consider qualities across a feminine and masculine spectrum to be leveraged as leadership qualities. So Trina, should we get into some of what we think are the associated with masculine traits or behaviors that people call leadership and then we get praised for demonstrating them? Yes, let's. And I'm going to like take a dig, big deep breath because um, for it's hard to talk about. And for those of you listening, we recognize some of this can be hard to hear because we know that this is made up, right? The idea that different qualities have been thought of as better or worse or more meaningful in the workplace when in fact we know leadership requires this huge um, toolbox of qualities that is full of sort of balance and harmony and depth. And so, um, yeah, let's get into it. So in our book, we use eight examples of <clears throat> leadership traits or qualities that are considered more desirable or more likable or that really get promoted and praised. Um, this isn't an exhaustive list, but there's sort of eight prevalent masculine traits that we see really promoted as leadership. So the first is being assertive, 
really asserting dominance, asserting um, knowledge, asserting authority, asserting correctness, asserting certainty. The second is forging forward to pursue a goal regardless of peer or employee emotions. So absolutely acknowledging people might be feeling different about what's going on, but moving toward the goal without consideration of those. The third related to that second one, the third is that a masculine trait is that um, that gets praised is not outwardly showing emotions. All humans have emotions. How we show them is different. Some of us have them internal and some of us express them more outwardly. The fourth is an overemphasis on facts and data. We love facts and data and those aren't the only ways of knowing truth or information. The fifth is the sort of caretaking that happens comes in the form of happy hour or going to some sort of entertainment function. The sixth is we hear people just described as strong or firm. The seventh is a hyper-focus on the individual so that my accountability is primarily to myself and about myself and isn't about anything structural or systemic happening. And then the eighth is getting praised for going first. So I'm breathing with you, Trina, because I don't ever like making or sharing that list. And when I read it, I see for myself all the ways in which I've been praised and promoted for exhibiting those things or have held back parts of who I am in order to perform some of these. So I am letting that sort of wash over me and, and just sort of sitting with the discomfort of being the one to share that list. Yeah. And thank you for naming those things. And I know as your business partner, as your close friend, right, you are in a body that is not of your choosing, meaning you are six feet tall, you've got broad shoulders, you have dark eyes, dark hair, and a beard. So the idea too, that you come in a package that people experience as a man, regardless of how you feel about that power, that strength, that frame, um, so I'm curious, maybe in just a couple of sentences, and then I'll go into the, the list of, of leadership qualities that have been associated with femininity. In your body, in the workplace, given all the people you've worked with, how has fixating on those that set of qualities or learning to perform those felt like limiting or not enough? If these are the things, um, what, what about these feel like they don't quite land with you, even though none of them alone are naughty, bad, incorrect behaviors, but this overemphasis or fixation on these as the key qualities, how has that held you back in your leadership? So um, I'm thinking about assertive as the first one I shared and goes first as the eighth one I shared. And I am someone who actually, I really like listening and I like, and this is also related to facts and data, is I like storytelling and I like listening to people's stories. So one of the ways that as a manager and as someone that has done a lot of hiring in my career, one of the ways I find things out is less in um, going first, is less in claiming certainty about something, but I do like to listen first. And I think I have been asked to go first and assert opinionated dominance based on data sets over ways that I would prefer. So I think implicitly in how I was trained to lead and manage, it was know what you're going to say, say it as fast as you can, and connect it to quantitative over qualitative data. Yeah, thanks for naming that. One of the things that you know our staff says about you is that you speak like you're so sure that sometimes you're even in the middle of brainstorming and folks are like, oh, he's made a decision. And I was like, no, he's been trained to be so assertive that he always sounds decisive, whether or not he's just dreaming up something new. So I think that's really interesting. So um, sharing this list um, that we've written down as well uh, to really think about 
behaviors that have been coded or attached to femininity, um, it's also a list of eight. So the first workplace behavior that's getting coded as feminine is to be deferential, meaning, you know, really thinking about, well, how does everybody feel and not wanting to really rock the boat. So if you want something and I want something and they're different, I'm going to defer to you because that's taking good care of the group. The second quality often associated with femininity in the workplace is um, assumed to be responsible, capable of, and interested in doing the emotional caretaking for the workplace team. So, right, a whole lot of us are spending a tremendous amount of our adult waking hours at work, and things are happening to us, whether it's work, task, project, goal-related, or it's life-related, like major medical events or accidents. But this idea that Surely we should look to the women on the team to help us navigate this complex emotional situation. The third trait associated with femininity is showing emotion outwardly. So like Alfonso, you just said, we all have emotions. We've been conditioned or, or trained by the people we grew up with, the communities we're a part of to either contain or express our emotion. And so this idea of women or feminine presenting people showing their emotion through potentially their body language, their voice, maybe bringing tears to the office. The fourth trait is using stories and metaphors um, more than facts and data. So this idea of really tying um, what it is we're working on or discussing into sort of a storytelling format um, has often been associated with a feminine quality, always talking about people, not just data. A strange one, I don't know how this came to be, but it definitely has felt true in my lifetime, is um, number five is five, six, hold on, one, two, three, four, five, yep. Um, so number five is the person uh, who's assumed to be planning birthdays or circulating condolence card is often a woman regardless of their role at the organization. It is assumed for some reason that um, leadership and femininity combined lead to being more soft or considered tender or also considered to care more than men or masculine presenting people. And this belief that through the lens of femininity, there is a focus on the group rather than the individual. So actually checking to make sure everybody feels okay after a meeting or really noticing if there's a sense that there is disruption, that somebody with a connection to femininity is going to sort of relax the group or reconnect to the group or clean up whatever has happened in the group. And finally, a behavior in the workplace associated with femininity is waiting your turn and actually that being considered respectful or appropriate. And if you are perceived as feminine, it being assumed that it is inappropriate or disrespectful for you to not wait your turn. Ooh, what a list. Oh, so I have a question for you, Trina, about that list that is similar to, but a little bit different than the one you asked me. Uh, it's a two-parter. So I'm curious for you, how have you seen people who are hiring you assume that you lead with those traits? And then two, how have you seen people that you're hiring try to show you that they don't have those traits to be more successful in the hiring process? Yeah. Oh, great question. Um, so assuming those traits about me, so one of the things that's interesting, right, is because we lead a national strategy firm that does coaching and facilitation and capacity building, we're essentially getting hired all the time by our clients, right? And so I'm in a lot of conversations where, you know, my body is in the room or somebody's seeing me on Zoom or hearing me over the telephone and getting a sense of, of sort of who I am. So I think I get asked a lot about how I'm going to take care of people during hard times. So we come at our work with this deep belief that going to work can feel fundamentally different in America and that our identities are actually an asset rather than a distraction to our work. But I think part of that is I get asked a lot um, how I'm going to keep people comfortable 
how I'm going to make sure everyone feels good. Um, so I'm asked not just to be the expert that I am providing the information that I have, but also, am I going to take care of everybody? And I get asked that a lot, which is interesting to think about. Um, when I have thought about the huge volume of hiring that I've gotten to do, and part of that is because I worked on issue-based campaigns for a lot of my career, so healthcare, hunger, living wage, issues like that, um, where we needed to build a big team, right, of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of full-time staff, volunteers, folks willing to, to talk to and engage voters on issues. I think we talk about issues that are central to our lives, but we expect people to not show any emotion while they're doing it, which I just like, my brain almost explodes when I think about that dissonance. And so I experience people apologizing to me when they are expressing emotion, whether it's passion, it's excitement, it's fear, it's sadness, it's rage, right? Like whatever, we're asking people to be passionate about their work, but to show me in a dispassionate way, which is just so odd. So I experience a tremendous amount of apologies. So if somebody's voice starts to crack when they're talking or they start talking really fast or they um, tell a story about a family member in order to help describe or make a point to me, they'll say, I'm sorry, this is the way I know how to do it or I, I apologize, I'm gonna pull it together. So people apologize a lot for feeling things. So it's wild to me when I think about all of the benefits of that full spectrum of leadership characteristics. The idea that the first eight I listed are often more rewarded in the American workplace than the eight that you listed. And when I think about the opportunity to think about those not as either ors, but as a spectrum of possibility, so much more opens up for our workplaces. So I'm not trying to be Pollyanna. I'm not trying to be sort of um, just dream about a world where gender doesn't matter. I actually want to, in a time when there are constructions of gender in our society, I want expressions of behavior to be praised and promoted and celebrated across a really broad spectrum where we don't say, well, that story was really nice, but can you quantify it for me? I want right. us to say, like, what would it look like to both tell a story and show a chart? Right, or the, the mythology of objectivity. Like, let's just look at this, right, objectively, everyone. And it's like, there's no such thing, given that I am always influenced by my entire lived experience up until that moment. And it doesn't mean I can't be conscious of all of those impacts, but that idea of why aren't we always threading and embedding scale and story, people and numbers, quantitative and qualitative. So I think like you're saying, what I love as a sort of feels like an invitation is, is there more on the menu that I am not taking advantage of either because I've been taught not to, because it's not a good use of my time or that's not what leadership looks like, or because I'm afraid of what you would think of me if I behaved that way, right? So for example, and we'll say it this way, being somebody who's in a female body, when I have behaved assertively, I have been called a bitch. I have been called overbearing. I have been called aggressive. I have been called out of control, right? And so this idea that if we are behaving actually with the full breadth of human characteristics, whether or not they've been ascribed to, to feminine or masculine, um, we get sort of batted down or told, hey, that behavior is not for you, right? And, and one of the things I love about running a business with you is you and I are really sort of alive and awake in our conversations about how our genders and our race impacts what other people decide that means about our business partnership. So I'm curious, since you decided and continue to decide, thank you for doing that, to be in business with me, a woman, um, what are some things you've noticed up close about how different people assume different things about us, even though we are super clear out loud that we co-own and co-run this business? What have you noticed, you know, inside, outside? What have you been up close to that's either been surprising or has been like, oh, this was so predictable, but it's still gross? 
I think there's two things that come to mind. Uh, highlight them and then tell, say a little bit more about each of them. So there's two things that I notice, uh, and they're about what people talk to us about. And so I have noticed that people more quickly tell you about their personal lives. I think we're both pretty gregarious. I think we're both pretty open. I think we're both very curious. I think we both have sort of high empathy. And so those are traits that we share. And I think people assume that in a man-woman team, that there's maybe a mom-dad dynamic going on. Mm -hmm. uh, so they bring you the mom stuff. Yeah. Um, the other piece is people talk to me more about our public participation. So they assume that I have um, authority or more knowing or the more right or important opinion about who we should be in relationship and where we should be. Um, there's some decisions you and I have made where that's a function that I do perform for us a lot of the time. And I would say if we are ever at when in-person was a thing we could do, conferences, events, networking things, um, even people coming up and talking to us um, at the end of a workshop, folks will talk to you about like an aha they had or an insight they're having or like, thank you so much for saying that. I feel so seen. And what folks bring to me is like business opportunities, partnership opportunities, promotional and marketing opportunities. So what people just sort of lay at our feet are rooted in the assumptions that women or feminine presenting folks perform particular duties and more masked men or more masculine presenting folks perform um, those other duties. And so we have worked really hard to make sure that we're both doing some of all of it not because we have some sort of professional free-for-all where we don't have focus, but we know that if you only ever respond to emotional inquiry and I only respond to promotional inquiry, that we allow that to get reinforced. So we, we swap and we take turns doing those different things. Absolutely. And one of the things I've really appreciated in our partnership is We've practiced not shying away when things really do feel like they've gotten bifurcated by gender, by race, or some other facet of our identity. And we talk about the tension and quite frankly, the pain when people are behaving at us in ways that are incongruent with how we think about ourselves, whether it's our capacity or what we're most interested in. So the assumptions people lay at our feet because of the packages we come in. And I know I've talked with you a lot about kind of two things that I think are, are probably relevant to most of the people listening. The first is I talk with you out loud as sort of my accountability buddy at the, at, about the ways in which a preference for masculinity has become internalized in me. So, right, just because I am a woman and was raised a girl, um, I have been praised for following the business rules or the leadership rules where leadership looks like this really tight set of behaviors. And so again, I've been policed out of them or it's a really fine line between when I get in trouble or when I get praised. But I've been able to say to you like, man, I don't know what's going on with me that I'm so uncomfortable when fill in the blank feminine behavior is happening, right? Or like I gotta catch myself because just like when we talk about race, racism and anti-racism, a preference for masculinity is in the water. I mean, we're swimming in it. And when folks will say things like, well, how do you know? Um, we can look all around us at who is considered excellent enough to be in charge. And I put in charge in quotes, in charge of a country, in charge of a company, in charge of a family. And so the idea that there are parts of my identity as a woman that I find incredibly empowering and I love it and I feel really lucky to feel really connected to my sense of my gender. And I catch all the time when I find it easier to just sort of behave in some of these masculine centered ways. 
The other thing I would say that I think is probably really relevant to listeners, and then we can pivot into some self-awareness work that we can all be doing, is you receive and believe when I tell you something has happened to me or when something has happened to us and it lands on me different than you. And so that's not always fun or pleasant, but you know, when we were in person and people would shake your hand and try to hug me and I would say, that's a stranger. I don't know why they want that kind of access to my body. Or when I would say, you know, the lady at the bank won't call me back, but she'll call you back for some reason. So can you go take care of it? Like we'll actually say, hey, I think gender is playing a role here. I think there's an assumption that you're the ultimate decision maker or that um, I'm just checking in or something. And so, and, and we'll wrestle and we'll say, hey, where do we want to really meet that head on? And where do we need to get the task done? I'm exasperated and exhausted. Will you just go take care of it? And so we don't shy away from the fact that some of the behavior happening to us seems to be happening around the gendered spectrum. And then we also don't make a one size fits all plan of how we're going to deal with it. We're say, given the context, what we're trying to do, whether or not we're in an important relationship or just sort of a, uh, a one time only relationship, here's the amount of labor we're going to spend getting our task accomplished. And I think it can be, I want to highlight something that you just said, because I think it can sound like just a neat or nice practice that two friends who work together have. <laughs> so what we are asserting and what we assert in our book, Hiring Revolution, is that having regular and daily conversations about the impact of how our gender identity and expression are perceived improves our work together. Right. That we are actually naming our real experience. And in the course of talking about that, we're not trying to make it go away. We're not just saying, but that's not who we are and that's not the kind of world we want to live in and that's not the kind of company culture we're building. We're saying you absolutely had that gendered experience as a matter of course, as part of your workday. So given that that keeps happening to you, given people keep hugging you and shaking my hand, calling me back and not calling you back, given that what we see is masculinity is being preferenced and promoted over femininity in this case, how would we like to be different together? Mm. And so it's a daily and a constant practice. And I just wanted to highlight that for folks. It's not about us being nice to each other or having a right. good relationship. It's not a practice that I look forward to. No, uh, <laughs> it's not fun. When we go to a restaurant and somebody gives you the bill, just assuming you're the one paying, I'm like, we share a business bank account. It's going on the, we have the same credit card. Right. Yeah. Um, I can offer some self-awareness questions because I think for some folks it's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Um, but will you say, you said this thing, Trina, about catching yourself in the act. Yeah. And in the book, we're really talking about hiring. So what would you say are like the top three things people should try to catch themselves in the act of preferencing masculinity in the hiring process. Oh, thanks for asking. Cause people are really thinking about their mix and then they seem dumbfounded about how they can't figure out how to make their mix real. So top three things to pay attention to when you're hiring, if you're thinking about the ubiquity of masculinity and the preference for masculine behaviors over all others. Number one, be really on the lookout for um, lookism in hiring. What do I mean? <laughs> you might now be hiring entirely um, digitally. You might be doing some in-person stuff. But what I mean about that is we've decided there are people who perform masculinity or femininity, femininity perfectly or um, sort of ultimately, like I sort of think about masculine and feminine on like the local news right? It's like, hey, there's what a lady looks like. And there's what a man looks like who's professional. So this idea of starting to notice, have I decided that there's something about that person's physical presence, either they're diminutive or they're large, or they're expressive with their hands or they're not, this idea of just strength or presence. And so I tied that back to looks or physicality, because often for, for no real reason, we're deciding that the tenor of a man's voice, like a baritone and below, or a tenor and below just feels strong, right? So just like catch yourself. If there are indicators about voice, about physicality, about looks, where you're thinking, 
wow, they would be a great face for our organization because fill in the blank, right? So you can sort of catch it there. The second thing, and we're really on kind of a high horse about this because all research backs it up, stop asking people about their previous salaries. Why? Women, people of color, transgender people are absolutely systemically and predictably paid less than cisgendered men and especially cisgendered white men. So if you keep fixating on my past as you are trying to hire me for a present and a future, my past will continue to not look as good or measure up because of systemic sexism. So you and I, Alfonso, had this conversation. So you happen to be six years younger than me. And we were having a conversation before we founded our company about pay over our lifetimes. And it got clear that you were making more money than me. I wasn't inherently mad about that, but we had this conversation of like, whoa, I have more experience. Something is happening around gender. So this idea that if you're only looking at, have I had a director title? Have I made more than X amount of money? My history won't look as good because of compounded sexism, right? So actually consider what is this role? What is our budget? How much should we pay this person? Not how much can I get away with paying this person? And then choosing to hire a woman instead because you could probably pay her less and she'd take it. So like, ugh, pay, right? The third thing is the category that makes me want to vomit that we call in our book, Hiring Revolution, likability. So there is some sort of special sauce. There's some X factor. There's some sort of like, okay, at some point in a hiring process, everybody's qualified. They could do the job, meaning they can read and write in English. They're comfortable on the computer. They're willing to make the phone calls I need them to make, right? If we're talking about kind of professional desk jobs. It often, especially in hiring committees, comes down to conversations about who made me feel good or who I liked being around, right? We've heard this in presidential races where it's like, who would I like to have a beer with? I don't know why that's relevant when you're hiring somebody for a job. And again, this idea that we are being fed messages from everywhere that men are more fun that men or being close to men will get me further or will protect me or will protect us, right? So catch yourself in conversations where you're like, oh, he just felt great or he really seemed confident. You start using words like that and you are both racing and gendering conversations because depending on the cultural community and tradition you grew up in, maybe speaking last is what respect looks like. And so this idea of, taking some time in between questions or um, asking you different kinds of questions, right? will look different. So catch yourself and recognize it's not maybe only individual personality I'm putting in quotes, but there could be a real gendered factor to why certain people feel good and feel less good to you. Oh, that's so helpful for any of us doing hiring. And I, I love the list. Um, and we will make sure that the folks at the forum have access to a link to a PDF with this list of traits, um, these three um, things to watch out for. What I want to offer here in closing is some self-awareness questions. Funny enough, there are eight of them. So three sets of eight as that, that we're practicing with here. So in our work, Trina and I practice in the field of intercultural development, meaning we understand that we can only achieve our equity, justice, inclusion goals through greater capacity. And we build capacity by starting with self-awareness. Often it can be so exciting or the moment demands that we go out and learn about someone who is not like us in order to be able to, like Trina said earlier, receive and believe those stories that aren't our own we have to be deeply connected to our own sense of identity and the related cultural behaviors that are linked to that identity group. So before you go out asking people to um, expose parts of themselves or share stories or give you insight or learning about a gender expression or gender identity group you're not part of, you must engage in deep self-awareness work to understand your relationship to masculine and feminine behavior patterns. So quickly, 
here are eight questions. I'm just going to offer them and let them each breathe a little bit that you could use to explore the ways in which you may, in your hiring, talent development, talent recruitment processes, be preferencing masculinity. First question, on those lists of eight masculine and feminine behaviors, really honestly, which of these behaviors do I tend to prefer? Number two, which behaviors do I honestly think of when I think of a leader? Number three, which behaviors do I use most to get ahead or to get promoted? Number four, which would I like to use more? Which of those 16 behaviors, and we know they're not an exhaustive list, they're just a place to start, which would I like to use more? Number five, when and where did I learn these things? And how do I project them onto others? Number six, what are my workplace's patterns related to any of these behaviors, which are praised, which are promoted, which are punished? Number seven, what kinds of people are praised for demonstrating which behaviors? So when we say which kinds of people we mean, is it white people or people of color, straight people or queer people, men or women, people with a director title, people who supervise, which kinds of people are praised for demonstrating which of these behaviors? And number eight, are there benefits, implicit or explicit, or advantages, implicit or explicit, in my workplace for exhibiting certain traditionally masculine or feminine behaviors. So what are the benefits for, for performing any of these? Thank you for sharing that list, Alfonso. And again, we'll make sure that that's available to all of you as listeners. As we wrap today, just some closing thoughts. And first, we want to say, you know, again, thank you so much for, for choosing to listen to sort of this episode on this topic. Thank you to the Forum for Workplace Inclusion for inviting us to bring this conversation to y'all. My closing thoughts include, um, first of all, remember that this is an invitation into more into deeper complexity. So one of the ways we think about doing gender-based work in workplaces is that this is about getting us out of those tight silos and saying rather than leaders with only a handful of qualities, what if I had this whole bucket full of qualities that I was ready and able to utilize in order to move my team forward, to move my work forward, to move our business forward. So this is really all in service of making us better, not keeping us stunted in these tiny facets of parts of who we are. I also want to name that there is no such thing as one size fits all. So just because I spoke today and Alfonso spoke today, um, just like how we can never speak on behalf of a whole race of people or a whole region of people, there's no such thing as you know me speaking on behalf of all women, right? So this idea that different people at your organization are going to ask for and need different kinds of things. So it's an invitation into figuring out where those themes are. And also just a reminder or a plea to you as a reminder that gender in the workplace is not a woman's issue. It is an everybody issue because we all have and express behaviors that have been coded as connected to our gender. So I really appreciate, Alfonso, you continuing to be sort of side by side in this work. I know that I learned so much from you and what you shared with me about your experience of gender. We know that right now it can feel like um, being a man is naughty or that you're supposed to sort of step away from that identity because of the history of harassment and violence and pay inequity, but you model such a beautiful job of taking responsibility for saying, okay, if I'm part of this system that benefits just by nature of being in my body, what do I do to make sure that everybody else sort of has the same access? So just a reminder, this is all of our work and it's not separate or different than our racial justice work. So remembering that 
our whole experience is inextricably linked. Right now, race is the single biggest difference making the difference. A close second is gender. So this idea that if we look at race, white people are continuing to do better in US workplaces than people of color, and men are continuing to do better than women. So then if you connect that and are thinking about women of color, men of color, white women, white men, this is all connected. So we invite you to not think of these conversations as super, super separate, but thinking about the complex whole that is our lived experience. And I'll just say, we have a ton of hope. We believe that in our lifetime, we can move a whole lot closer to the world that we want to have together around gender. Alfonso, will you tell folks where they can find us? Yes, if you want to keep this conversation going with us about the connection between gender, gender identity, gender expression, race and racism, you can find us at teamdynamicsmn.com, on Twitter at teamdynamicsllc, and like we say on our podcast, Behave, thanks for hanging out, wash your hands, wear a mask, and make good choices. Thank you again so much, Trina Alfondo, for that wonderful podcast. I'm really looking forward to the book myself. If you would like to learn more, please feel free to visit their website, um, teendynamicsmm.com. We have more episodes of the Forum podcast that are also available on forumworkplaceinclusion.org, Forecast Podcast. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.